0: Welcome to the BJSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Prof Margot Mountjoy, fresh from presenting at the IOC Advanced Team Physician Course in Tokyo. Prof Mountjoy is an Associate Clinical Professor in Sport and Exercise Medicine in Canada at McMaster University. With a wealth of experience at the global level, Prof Mountjoy also works in international sport for the IOC, WADA, and FINA. Prof Mountjoy, thank you for joining us again on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to chat with you today.
0: In 2018, you wrote about the Larry Nassar tragedy for the BMJ and BJSM. Many of our listeners will already be familiar with the case, but I was hoping you could start by taking us back to what happened and why it is so important to revisit the case today.
1: Well, certainly uh, this this tragedy was a big surprise for me and I'm sure it was for a lot of the listeners. When I learned of this, as many people did through the media, from listening to the athletes' testimonies in court, it it seemed to, you know, the story seemed to unroll before our very eyes on television and and in the social media and, and whatnot. And and what what the case is, is that these athletes, gymnasts in the United States of America, were coming to a court case, and the court case was around the accusations of sexual impropriety or sexual abuse of, of numerous gymnasts over numerous years. And in fact, as, as the court case was heard, we heard the stories and the voices of these young women and what the impact of that abuse, sexual abuse was for them and what it meant to them. And I think for me personally, that was the part that struck my heart the most um, was just hearing their voices and their stories and what this meant to them. So the Larry Nasser A physician with a USA gymnastics team was using uh, what he called therapeutic. Treatments for these women, which was in fact sexual abusing, these women often in front of parents in the examining room and in the course of calling it treatment for their injuries, and and this went on for many years and for many many athletes and was quite devastating for a lot of the athletes. Not only gymnasts, there was also uh, athletes in the university where he worked that were also um, victims of his uh, so-called treatments, which in the end, as the judge aptly put, were sexual abuse of these women. So why do we want to visit this? I think, you know, it's not sensationalism. It's not, it's not that it's because we almost learn from this. We all have to look at our own professions and our own behaviors as positions and say, how can we prevent this? What can we do to ensure that another Larry Nassar case doesn't happen to our athletes and to our sport? Because the damage is of his behaviors affect not only the athletes themselves, but their families, their teammates, the sport organizations, and the integrity of the sport in general. So it's a tough look at ourselves. It's a tough review of the underbelly of sport and the bad things that happen, but it's an important and integral one that we spend the time and evaluate, why did this happen? What went wrong? How can we learn from this and prevent in the future?
0: When and why does sexual abuse occur in sport?
1: So why does it occur? Uh, Often we say, and as it says in the IOC consensus statement, that it occurs due to a lack of leadership. Now, that's a very interesting thing because if you think of it, you think, oh, it's about a, a bad person who does nasty things to people. But in fact, of course, that does happen. But why it happens is because of failed leadership within the sport organizations to ensure that there's policies and procedures in place to help protect and prevent this from happening in their sport organization, so we can start off with that premise that if we have a, a, a sports society where you have low uh, sport protection, where you have high athlete vulnerability for whatever reason, whatever discrimination that might be, and where you have high, where you have a perpetrator with high motivation, that is the perfect recipe for sexual abuse in sport.
0: What effect has the Me Too movement had in sport?
1: Actually, the Me Too movement has has cast a big lens on the issue of, of sexual abuse, particularly of women. You know, Hollywood, in in social sorry, in um, film and so what does that mean to sport and i think what it's done is that it's empowered women to speak up about their abuse and in doing so other women have felt the um the ability to say yeah you know what i I'm, I'm, i also felt this and there's also almost been a sister kinship Uh, of these women that says, well, it's happened not only to me, because often victims of sexual abuse or abuse in general feel like they're the only one in the world who's felt like this. So they become very isolated, embarrassed, ashamed and protective of this tragedy, and they don't want to share it because they feel they're the only ones and they'll be um, criticized for what's happened to them. And what the Me Too movement was to say, hey, it happened to me, I can help you, and then there's a sisterhood or a kinship that's empowered these women to speak up. So this Me Too movement has empowered many women within sport to come forward with their own stories of sexual abuse to bring healing, but also to bring you know, potential justice to those who have abused them.
0: What are the other types of abuse or harassment in sport?
1: There are three other types of abuse and harassment. The one we've been talking about, of course, is sexual abuse. Another form is physical abuse, another one is neglect. And the final one is psychological abuse. And I'd like to spend a moment and just talk ab- about psychological abuse. This is the most prevalent type of abuse and harassment in sport, and it is, underpins all other forms of abuse. And I think it's fair to say, and we can all understand, that there's no form of abuse of any type that doesn't start with psychological abuse. And so this is a really important one for everyone to understand. And, and these often don't happen in isolation. Uh, someone who is physically abused or psych- psychological abuse will have some form of psychological component to that. Physical abuse itself, as I think you can well imagine, there's trauma involved perhaps with hitting, punching, kicking. We're familiar with these kinds of things from uh, the, the context outside of sport, of physical abuse. But within sport, there's other types of physical abuse, um, such as overtraining, training in an environment that's unsafe, uh, training loads that are inappropriate for the uh, developmental level of the athlete. Uh, Perhaps medication abuse by physicians or even doping in sport can affect the physical health of the athlete. Neglect is a little different. Neglect is the lack of meeting the athlete's needs. and uh, In particular, it could be um, physical needs with uh, food or hydration, protection uh, against the environment, maybe uh, too much exposure to heat or to cold or just neglecting their needs and care um, you know, when traveling.
0: You mentioned before that one of the determinants or one of the risk factors for abuse is the athlete's vulnerability. And I was wondering, where does the athlete's stress resilience capacity come into all of this?
1: Well, that's a very interesting concept. And I think we need to be very clear here that athletes are not responsible for abuse when it happens to them no matter what. So I want to make very clear here that athletes should never feel that it's their responsibility to have avoided abuse and that if they are abused that it's because they're too weak. So victims and athletes are never responsible. But we have athletes that are of particular vulnerabilities uh, through various discriminations that make them uh, perhaps targets of perpetrators. So, for instance, maybe it will be a social-economical discrepancy where, you know, one athlete, you know, for whatever reason, that discrimination sets them up to be um, a victim. Or it could be racial. It could be sports skill. uh, It could be gender. It could be sexual orientation. I mean, there's a whole list of discriminations that uh, make um, an athlete perhaps vulnerable to a perpetrator. Now, why do some athletes come through the same experience and are traumatized by it and other athletes just shrug it off and say, ha, that's life, uh, that's a really interesting phenomenon of which we don't have a lot of literature and information on it and it's certainly an area that is of special interest of mine and And I think looking at how we can ensure that our athletes are empowered To, uh, first of all, recognize when they're particularly in a vulnerable situation, how to speak up to stop any particular abuse when it may be starting or at least recognize it and seek help is really an important area in prevention.
0: You were part of the team that put together the recently published Mental Health in Elite Athletes international olympic committee consensus statement published in the bjsm in the consensus statement you emphasize the impact of abuse in sport can be devastating and long-standing what are the impacts of abuse on the athlete and how do these differ from the impacts on the organization
1: well, that's a that's a very loaded question and it's mm-hmm. a very important one. Um, so yes, I was part of that mental health paper, and and my role in that paper was bringing the harassment abuse lens to that paper because I feel very strongly, and the group agrees with me, that any athlete presenting with mental health issues, it's imperative that the clinician working with the, that athlete inquires at least in in their history about the presence of harassment abuse because often athletes will book for mental health problems, but the underlying causes from harassment abuse. Now, not always, but if we don't ask and open the door, they will probably not disclose. So, really important to put on the, um, you know, in the core competencies of a clinician that if an athlete is presenting with mental health problems, then it's really important in your history to be thorough and ask about the presence of the harassment abuse, either within or outside of sport. So when you talk about the impacts, obviously there's psychological impacts that some athletes present with, such as um, uh, self-harm, suicidal ideation, anxiety, uh, depression, substance abuse. These are all forms of uh, potential presentations of abuse and harassment in sport. Athletes may also present with physical repercussions. So the athlete, who's injured a lot, injured more than the other athletes. Someone who comes in with suspicious suspicious injuries. And we all know the story of the housewife who's abused, who has numerous bruises on her faces and says she keeps falling down the stairs. Well, what about the athlete that has more injuries than the other teammates, or unusual bruises that don't make sense? Those are the kinds of physical presentations. They may also present with somatiform type of uh, presentations And that's that's certainly something in the back of your mind if you're seeing a lot of physical symptoms that don't fit into a pattern and make sense that it's important that physicians ask about the presence of harassment and abuse. And there also might be other uh, impacts on the athlete such as relationships, uh, having difficulties maintaining relationships with teammates, relationships outside of sport with loved ones or social um, relationships uh, with friends or at work. So these are all uh, different ways that athletes may present. Um, I'm also concerned about the athlete who has good performance, but when someone comes along, you know, either to watch or you know their perpetrator comes into the sport arena, their performance falls apart, and and people come and say, well, why is this athlete's behavior or performance so erratic? So these are things that each and of their own don't necessarily mean it is harassment abuse, but if there's a pattern that you're seeing, that it's important to ask. The impacts on sport are often very different, but quite devastating. And I think we can look at USA Gymnastics and recognize the impact on, on sport, how, how significant that can be. Uh, if you look at on sport, if you have an athlete who's being harassed and abused, they're probably not going to perform up to their potential. So there's loss of, loss of uh, winning of gold medals and loss of, therefore loss of uh, sponsorship possibilities. And over and above that, if there's, there's reputational damage if um, if a sport has had uh, significant harassment abuse in their um, organization, within their organization, there is loss of reputational ability. And, and in fact, what happens is sponsors may walk away because they don't want to be associated with those kinds of behaviors. There's also a lack of interest in the sport from parents putting children in that sport. Sport for parents is a safe place for children to grow and learn. Sport has many positive things for children's growth and development, self-esteem, physical skills, social skills. I mean, sport has got such wonderful attributes. It's why we're all involved. But a sport that's tainted by harassment and abuse is a sport that, as a parent, people don't want to put their athletes, their children, in because they feel it's not safe. So by decreasing sport participation, you decrease, um, you know, revenues from uh, participation, but also your stars of tomorrow will be in a different sport. And, And finally... You know, it just erodes the integrity of sport itself and sport organizations don't function well when they're in a a, a toxic environment.
0: In 2016, the Athlete Welfare Program was introduced to the Olympic Games thanks to all of your hard work. Can you tell us a bit about the program and what can athletes and medical teams expect at Tokyo next year?
1: Very exciting. And I have to tell you, it took 10 years to get from the first consensus statement on sexual harassment and abuse to get uh, policies and procedures in place in the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. And I'm absolutely celebrating and thanking the IOC for their leadership and for understanding and believing in the importance of this topic for athlete health and well-being. So at the Olympic Games, uh, there's policies and procedures in place that all athletes, coaches, and everyone accredited at the, at the Olympic Games must adhere to. And these include uh, behavioral codes of conduct uh, so that we know appropriate behavior of what's expected. But more than that, there's also procedures for the reporting of harassment and abuse, and there are procedures for hearing cases, uh, disclosures, and there's also sanction- potential sanctionings that can happen if someone is found guilty of, of harassing and abusing anyone at the Olympic Games, be it athlete or anybody else that's the victim of them. So this is uh, something that you I think is is fairly simple, but you have to involve um, a a safeguarding officer. So athletes may see a safeguarding officer in place who is someone that's safe for people to disclose to, that knows how to activate the system to protect the athletes and to also safely investigate any allegations to protect uh, from wrongful accusation and as well activate uh, any sanctioning process. So this safeguarding officer is a very visible person around the games uh, for all the athletes to see and recognize. But as well, prior to the games, there's these policies and procedures circulated to everyone so that they're aware of that this is, is happening. In addition, there's also a, a very uh, robust educational program that occurs for all athletes so that they, um, you know, as they're walking through the area, they can stop and take part in some educational online tools. They can s- chat with some of the experts on, on site, some of the athlete advocates and learn about this and understand what their rights are and empower them to, sp- to speak up and ensure that there's uh, athlete safeguarding policies and procedures in their own organizations, be it their International federations, national Olympic committees, or national federations at home. In the Youth Olympic Games in 2018 in Buenos Aires, we expanded significantly the educational program and have actually captured some youth athlete data on their understanding of what safe sport is and um, what whether or not harassment and abuse occurs in in their sports. And uh, what their understanding is of the concept. So it's really quite exciting to um, to see the enhanced program that happened in Buenos Aires 2018. So in Tokyo, what to expect? Much like 2016, there will be also the same policies and procedures in place. There'll be an educational program in place and a safeguarding officer there to to hear any um, you know allegations or disclosures of harassment and abuse.
0: Before we let you go can you leave our listeners who are very clinically oriented with three things that they can apply today in their practice to help play their part in preventing harassment and abuse?
1: Yes. Wonderful. And I have actually written a paper with uh, Marcus, Marks and myself and the BGSM that goes, that really has a focus on what sport medicine clinicians should do. And it really outlines the core competencies of sport medicine clinicians. So three things. Number one Put harassment and abuse on your radar screen when you're seeing athletes and just think about it, ask about it, and open the door. What often happens is that the first time you ask about it, athletes may not say anything, but they've heard you, and they've heard you give permission to talk about it. And if they're ready one day, they'll remember that you said it was okay to talk about it and you were a safe person to talk with. So be vigilant and think about you know, unusual presentations or things you're seeing, especially mental health, to ask. The second thing, it's important that all team physicians ensure that the sport organizations they work in have uh, policies, procedures, codes of conduct, reporting mechanisms, and, and mechanisms by which to manage allegations. All sport organizations that I'm associated with should have this in place, and it's, ins- it's imperative upon all doctors to ensure that it's involved, that any sport organization they're involved with have these in place for the protection of themselves as well as all athletes and, and people involved. The final thing I'd like to leave you with, it is very important, extremely important from the athlete impact perspective, that if a clinician or physician sees harassment and abuse in an athlete or that is happening to an athlete, it's imperative that they stop the abuse and protect the athlete because if we don't stop it and protect the athlete and it continues that that compounds the harm for the athlete it's called the bystander effect and it really is compounds detrimentally the impact by an athlete disclosing to someone in a position of power a physician and by not stopping it it's it's actually said to the athlete that this is acceptable and okay and that just is so devastating for the outcomes of that athlete. So if an athlete discloses it's absolutely important that the physician acts to protect the athlete and stop the abuse to avoid this uh, negative impact from the bystander effect. And I'm going to add a fourth. I know you only asked for three, but I'm going to add a fourth. Please ensure all physicians that we have an action plan. We have an action plan for an acute knee. We have an action plan for heat stroke. We have an action plan for asthma. What is your action plan for harassment and abuse? Who do you call? Who are the specialists that you would bring in to help support, be it physical abuse, sexual abuse with a gynecologist, or be it psychological abuse where you need a, a sports psychiatrist or a mental health worker? Who do you call from the policies and procedures perspective? So who's your team? Who's your action plan? What would you do in in case of um, disclosure for you? Please have a plan ahead of time because if it lands up on your lap and you don't have one, it's really distressing as a physician to not have that backup and, and plan in place.
0: Prof Mountjoy, I think this is a great place to end it. Thank you very much for your time today, and on behalf of the whole BGSM community, thank you for all of your brave and pioneering work on harassment and abuse in sport.
1: Uh, thank you for your interest, and to the IOC for their uh, leadership in this, and of course to the BGSM for supporting this podcast and the publications.
0: You've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Professor Margot Mountjoy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends, or leave us a review, and connect to our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday and there is no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.